Welcome to the forum, live streamed worldwide from the Leadership Studio at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I'm Dean Michelle Williams. The forum is a collaboration between the Harvard Chan School and independent news media. Each program features a panel of experts addressing some of today's most pressing public health issues. The forum is one way the school advances the frontiers of public health and makes scientific insights accessible to policymakers and the public. I hope you find this program engaging and informative. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, my name is Natasha Loder and I'm the Health Policy Editor at The Economist. I'm also today's moderator and it's great to be here. On uh, my panel today, uh, starting from my immediate right, are Laurie Glimcher, who's the President and CEO of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Uh, next to her is Jill O'Donnell-Tormey, who's the CEO and the Director of Scientific Affairs at the Cancer Research Institute. And on the end is Greg Simon, who's the president of the Biden Cancer Initiative and the former executive director of the White House Cancer Moonshot Task Force. Um, and of course, joining us remotely, hello Rizal, is uh, Rizal Kurzak, who's the senior deputy director of UCSD Moore's Cancer Center. Welcome everyone. So this forum is supported by The Economist Group and we're streaming live uh, on the website of the forum, Facebook and YouTube. The program will include a brief Q&A and you can email questions to us at the forum at hsph.harvard.edu. You can also participate in a live chat that's happening on the forum right now. So today's event uh, was inspired by Baroness Tessa Jowell, who passed away last year after battling brain cancer. And Tessa served as a member of parliament uh, between 1992 and 2015. And she also initiated and managed the winning bid for the London 2012 Olympics and Paralympics. And uh, at Harvard in 2016, she was the the Menschel Senior Leadership Fellow um, at the Chan School. And she was also a board member at the Economist Group. And she was also an extraordinary human being um, to whom I cannot do justice to in a few uh, short words. But uh, speaking from a British perspective, I can tell you that she was very widely admired for both her kindness and her determination. And The Economist very much wanted to support this forum in honor of Tessa because uh, we knew this issue became very important for her. She spent the final months of her life uh, campaigning for improved cancer treatment and global cooperation to save lives. And we're delighted that her daughter, Jess Mills, is in the audience today. So to get just briefly a sense of how Tessa championed the need for this new approach to cancer, I'd like to, uh, for us to take a look at a speech she delivered at the House of Lords. And here she describes an effort called the Eliminate Cancer Initiative, or ECI, and she also talks about GBM, which she refers to glioblastoma cancer, which she had. And this clip is shown uh, with the permission of Parliament. So if we could cue the clip, please, that would be fabulous. No one nation can solve the problem of GBM on its own. It is an opportunity 
that belongs to the world. ECI aims to do three main things. The first, link patients and doctors across the world through a, trinity, a, a clinical trial network. Secondly, speed up the use of active trials. And thirdly, build a global database to improve research and patient care. Usually, drug, drug trials test tested only one uh, drug at a time. They take years and cost a fortune to deliver. They speed up the process and save a lot of uh, and, and save a lot of uh, money when we can see these um, approaches to the delivery of cancer uh, transformed. Speaking to uh, Tessa's daughter yesterday, um, it struck me that at the heart of what uh, Tessa was concerned with was how to create a universally excellent care for all, rich and poor, rural or urban, whatever color or race. Um, so let's turn to the forum. I'm going to just introduce a couple of brief slides. Um, if you could cue the first slide. Um, what we're here to talk about is the treatment of less common and rare cancers. This, this slide is really just to show you, it's an illustrative, um, it's an English, uh, it's, a, it's a, 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 a diagram showing English uh, cancer um, uh, treatments and progress in there. And really the only sort of take home message I want you to get from this slide is that we've made lots of progress in some cancers and there are some cancers for which we have made very little progress. And if, I mean, this slide here only shows pancreatic cancer, but I think the point is, is there are lots of cancers down at the bottom, many, many cancers, many of which are rare and less common, where we really haven't made uh, much progress at all, and the outcomes are the same they were uh, 20 years ago. And um, the challenge is really working with small patient populations and late diagnoses. The second slide, please, again, just for the uh, broad context here, is the monthly the cost of cancer drugs, which has increased tremendously. So the question before us today is, what can we do to make sure that there are more effective treatments for rare cancers and to make sure that they're accessible uh, to patients who need them? Um, you can let go of the slides now. Thank you very much. So with that <coughs> backdrop, I'd like to just start our uh, conversation uh, with Laurie, actually. And I want you to give me a little bit about your perspective of rare cancer research. So let me start by saying that um, it's an honor to be here. Um, Tessa Jowell was a remarkable woman, and I'm so glad that we're, that we're doing this. We have made a lot of progress in cancer over the last decade and a half. There are patients who had end-stage metastatic melanoma, which is a skin cancer, who are still alive today, 10 years later, because of immunotherapy. There are patients who have had deadly diseases like lung cancer who are still alive today because of cancer genomics, which is targeted therapeutics. But as Natasha said, 
we are not there yet. We are really at the end of the beginning. We're at the next generation of immunotherapies and cancer genomics. And that's particularly true for the intransigent cancer. So as Natasha said, we have done really well with some cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, acute lymphocytic leukemia in children, done very well with those cancers, but there's some cancers that are completely intransigent uh, to therapeutics, and that includes glioblastoma and pancreatic cancer and mm -hmm. ovarian cancer and acute myelogenous leukemia, for example. And then there are the very rare cancers when I say very rare, I mean less than six people per 100,000 people. And interestingly enough, we've made quite a lot of progress on some of those cancers just in the last year. In fact, the American Society of Cancer Oncologists chose as their major advance for 2018 the treatment of rare cancers. Five very rare cancers now have therapies that they didn't have two years ago. That includes anaplastic thyroid cancer, which now can be treated. It includes a rare tumor of your joint called giant cell tumor. It includes a subset of uterine cancer called serous uterine cancer and mid-gut neuroendocrine cancer, and finally a rare sarcoma called desmoid sarcoma. And these are diseases that are extremely rare, but now each have therapies. So I do, I am optimistic, but we need to continue to focus intensively on those cancers that have proven to be difficult, whether they meet the definition of very rare cancers or if they simply are <coughs> cancers that we have been unsuccessful in treating. And uh, glioblastoma is certainly one of them. And there are a number of new approaches to glioblastoma. I'm happy to say, actually, that faculty members, researchers at Dana-Farber just published paper in Nature uh, showing the first vaccine against glioblastoma. Uh, it does arouse the immune system. There was no clinical effect. It is a very small early phase one clinical trial, but at least we have a vaccine for glioblastoma that does at least seem to activate the immune system. It's going to be, the, the answer is going to be combination therapy. We're going to have to mix chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, immunotherapy, cancer genomics, those are targeted drugs that identify and attack and disable genetic mutations. Just like HIV AIDS, what turned HIV AIDS from a lethal disease into a manageable disease so that a 20-year-old who becomes infected with HIV has virtually a normal lifespan? It was the realization by basic scientists that you had to attack this very dangerous virus in multiple places at the same time. And that is the future of cancer treatment, is combining different drugs together. Thank you. So um, we hear a lot about immunotherapy at the moment. So I wonder if you can tell me, Jill, because that's something I know the Cancer Research Institute focuses on. Tell me a little bit more about the promise and also the challenges of immunotherapy, please. Yeah, so I think uh, immunotherapy has become uh, something that the average person out there has heard about and learned about. And we've heard some remarkable results, as Laurie has already mentioned, at least in certain cancers. And it's almost miraculous when it does work. Uh, and these are in intractable cancers. You know, uh, metastatic melanoma, uh, 
eight years ago had no treatment at all. Mm -hmm. And now at least 20 to 30 percent with one type of immunotherapy, you know, just giving one type of immunotherapy, ha seems to be able to live and have durable responses. And I think this is what the immune system, we now have proof of principle that in the right patients, under the right circumstances, you can activate your immune system, harness its power to deliver durable responses. So that's the, the high point, and this is happening in a variety of cancers. And we have, uh, I think over the last eight years, there's been six different checkpoint blockades that have been approved. There's been two CAR therapies that's been approved. An oncolytic virus has been approved by the FDA for treatment. But again, it's limited. Those checkpoints are all to the same two targets, PD-1 or PDL one uh, But I think this is showing the hope that we, no one can now question whether your immune system can have a role in treating and controlling cancer. I think the challenge is it's still only a minority of patients that are getting immunotherapy that have these miraculous responses. And in some cancer types, what are called kind of cold tumors, uh, the immune system, at least the uh, immunotherapies we have right now, don't seem to be working very well. So with that, we have uh, uh, the ability that can we reverse this? Can we get non-responders to become responders? And I totally agree with what Lori said. I think everyone in the medical community would agree it's going to come down to combinations. I think immunotherapy has the potential to treat all cancers, but we have to learn how to use it appropriately. And there are a number of variety of different types of immunotherapies. That's a big word that encompasses a lot of different treatments. And I think we have to understand how to use them in combination, in combination with targeted therapy, in combination with what are the traditional standards of care with chemotherapy and radiation. And I think the challenge is, is how do we understand what combination can be used for which patient. And I think that's where it all comes down to research. It comes down to basic biological research of understanding the mechanisms and pathways of the immune system and its interaction with cancer. And also it, becomes, it requires the correlative science that accompanies early phase and late phase clinical trials. We need to understand what is happening at the tumor site when patients get treated with an, one immunotherapy and why they don't respond. So I think to learn as much as you can from every patient in a clinical trial is one of the ways that is essential for our research to give us the, inform us what is the next priority combination and have a basic scientific and mechanistic understanding of why combining two things would make sense for a specific patient. And I think the future is probably in personalized immunotherapy. Fascinating. Um, Roselle, you're doing some particularly interesting work. You're heading the, the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapy at UC San Diego Health, and you're also co-chairing DART, which is the first federally funded immunotherapy trial uh, devoted to rare cancers. Can you tell me a little bit about what these efforts are aiming to do? Uh, yes, happy to do so. Um, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk about this. Uh, so the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapy, uh, the main theme is that each tumor is both complex and uh, uh, different. And so this is the extension of rare cancers. If everybody has um, their own portfolio of biologic changes. And what we try to do is to look at each patient as an individual, understand them at the genomic level, at the immune level, with uh, powerful new tools that we have now. And then to give them combination therapy, but not just combinations, but customized combinations um, that are suited uh, to the biologic milieu in every patient. Uh, so that's really what we're excited about. 
And um, I think that this is a model um, for rare tumors, but it also makes um, common tumors into, um, I guess you could say rare tumors, if you look at each uh, cancer and each patient as an individual. And now the other question is then how do you scale that? Uh, because rare tumors, it's really hard to do uh, clinical trials. There's a few hundred rare tumors and the activation energy of each of those trials is significant. And that's why we started uh, DART, uh, which is being done under SWOG in partnership with the National Cancer Institute and uh, is really a national immunotherapy trial um, giving two uh, checkpoint inhibitors, and um, it is open at uh, over 850 sites, has accrued almost 600 patients, and in one basket trial, we have numerous cohorts, almost 40 cohorts of patients with different rare tumors, so that we don't have to do a trial in each disease and take the time to activate each of those trials, but we can do one trial, open it across the country and accrue in all of those patients. Thank you, Rizal, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so Greg, I'm gonna just turn to you and um, one of the key challenges is getting cancer treatment uh, onto the market faster to help people with cancer. Um, what are we doing right at the moment and where do we need to improve? Thank you and thank you for having me. This is a really important discussion. What we're doing right is that we have an FDA that's done a, a record-breaking number of approvals in the last few years, or the last 10 years really, uh, but also designated a lot of new drugs as breakthrough drugs uh, and as uh, rapid approval drugs because where you see the results in these trials very quickly if they're positive. Um, uh, and so we are able to move things to the market with a relatively few number of patients per drug. What we're doing wrong is what we've always done wrong. Um, we haven't collaborated. We haven't shared data. We still don't have standards in cancer. Uh, Lori and I were at a meeting of the top several cancer centers in the country and I asked the question to the directors, how many of you would trust the pathology report from uh, of the other institutions in the room? And one of the directors says, I don't trust them from my institution. Um, and that's because we don't have standards. So the Biden Cancer Initiative is working with our advisory committee, the FDA, the National Institute for Standards and Technology, to develop assays to measure patients' responses to immunotherapy drugs because right now every company has its own yardstick. And when the FDA compared them, they were only 15% congruent, one to the other. This is unacceptable. Immunotherapy gives patients autoimmune disease that's intended to kill cancer, not to give them diabetes plus cancer. And if you don't know if the patient has the proclivity to respond, or if you don't know how well they're responding, then you're operating in the dark. And we should be way past that. The other thing is, um, science is hard enough, but human culture makes it that much harder. When we don't share results quickly, when we don't share failures, when we have too few pediatric trials and too many adult trials, we are starving the pediatric community of the knowledge they need to help children because companies don't want a pediatric drug if they don't have an adult indication to pair with it. 
And we have too many trials with every company trying to get its own toy because they don't want to play together. This is unacceptable and it's bad for patients when you have 1,400 or more trials to develop drugs that are similar to the drugs that are already on the market. Just the control arm is using thousands of patients and causing them immense cost, lost time at work, their caregivers lost time. We've got to do a better job of working together because we are all in this together. I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 20 years ago, I might not be here. Even 10 years ago, I might not be here. But because of people working together in CLL, I was successfully treated two and a half years ago. That's the kind of story I wish we could have in many more cancers. And it's not just about the science. It's about our culture. Can I continue that theme a little bit? You know, when I look at the future, within, let's say, the next three to five years, I would like to see a time in which a patient comes in to the clinic is diagnosed with cancer, a biopsy is taken, and we can then predict what the response of that patient will be to what drug. And that's because we are amassing quantities of data, sort of five different buckets of data. We have the pathology, which can now be digitized thanks to machine learning. We have the imaging, the radiology, what that patient's cancer looks like. That also can be digitized by taking advantage of machine learning, artificial intelligence. We finally now have genomics, so we can sequence. At Dana-Farber, we offer every patient the opportunity to have their tumor sequenced so we can figure out what the genetic mutation is that they have. That's the third bucket. The fourth bucket is now immunoprofile that that Jill alluded to, where we can figure out what does the patient's immune system looks like? Why does Mrs. Jones respond to an immunotherapy and Mrs. Smith doesn't when they have the same cancer? Well, there must be something different in their immune system. We have to figure out what that is, and that's going to require a lot of immunosequencing, which is done. That's the fourth bucket. And of course, the fifth bucket is the patient's record and the outcome. We need to know which patients respond to what therapies. And if we collect those five massive buckets of data and analyze them using machine learning, we should, within the next, I hope, three to five years, be able to say to a patient, here are the four drugs that you need to be on for your cancer. There's no point in putting you on this drug because you're not going to respond to it. We know that. Or we don't want to put you on this drug because you're going to have unaccepted unacceptable toxicity from it. You're going to have type 1 diabetes um, or colitis, severe colitis. Because we don't, patients don't have time to waste, right? There's a limit to how many clinical trials you can do and they take a long time. So, you know, my dream is that we will have the ability to have a patient walk in and within a few days say to him or her, we have your program. We have your treatment program. We're pretty sure you're going to respond to this combination of drugs, maybe chemo plus immunotherapy plus a targeted therapeutic, a cancer genomics. could be anything, but we'll be able to do that for the patient, saving them precious time, precious, precious time. 
Gosh, so many questions um, arise from all of that. I guess one question is that, great, if I'm a patient at the Donor-Farber Center, I'm going to have all that, that work done and you hold all that data. But I mean, more broadly, when we think about you know, any individual cancer patient, how are they going to get access to that kind of an analysis? Now, in the UK, we're going to be doing genetic analysis for some, some cancer, and that's great, and there'll be a national health service. But maybe we could talk a little bit more broadly about how this information is actually going to end up serving all patients, not just your lucky ones. Well, we're part of a consortium, actually. Um, Dana-Farber is with about 15 other cancer centers. Uh, and that consortium shares all its genomic data right now. Right. Eventually, when we have more immunoprofile data, we'll share the immunoprofile data as well. And that's very valuable because let's say you have um, a rare genetic mutation and there is a drug that is out there that's in clinical trials, for example, for this rare mutation, but Dana-Farber only has four patients who have that mutation. But Memorial Sloan Kettering might have six patients, and you know MD Anderson might have another four. Well, we can now go onto that site and say, let's do it together. Let's do the trial together. This this will give us enough patients so that we can really understand whether this drug is going to work in people who have this specific genetic mutation. Does anyone else want to jump in on that topic? Well, I mean, I, I think that just in, in, I think when it comes to immunology, we're a little bit behind the curve in terms of like the genetic analysis where you have genes and if you, and again, I, even with the, the genetic analysis, I think it, matching a gene that you identified a function is still requiring a lot of research. So I mean, I think we have that. And I think the immune system is a little, is, is even more complicated than just a gene. So uh, there's an awful Definitely. lot of research that needs to be on me before we can understand even what an immune profile really means. So I think that comes back to the fact of research across the whole, you know, from basic to correlative science on patient samples. But I do think that it's important for these early clinical trials, and this is as, an, as a head, heading a not-for-profit, I think it's a role a not-for-profit can play in terms of bridging the gap between academia and industry, finding a way to do multi-center phase one, phase two trials, not a multi-center phase three trial, but a multi-center, you know, the initial uh, investigative thing that we're trying to get a signal, and do it very much like the basket trial that was referred to before, but on a platform trial. We can have small cohorts of 10 or 15, 20 patients where you can learn an awful lot from 20 patients when it comes from the immunological perspective. And I think this, as you said, there's a big uh, initiation level you have to get over to start a trial. So having these trials that you can bring in a patient, 20 patient cohort here, 20 patient cohort here, that's testing different combinations. You do deep science on it. And <laughs> at this point, I think we want big signals. We're not looking for little minor signals. We want step changes. So within 20 patients, you can see if there's going to be a, what may be a significant clinical response. You match that to the correlative science of understanding what's happening at the tumor microenvironment, what's happening to the immune system there, and you can expand that cohort. If you don't get that signal, close that cohort down, but the trial stays open, and you can try a different combination. So I think this is efficient use of money, it's efficient use of time, because time is of the essence, at least in, the in immunotherapy, the field is changing so rapidly. There's so much discovery. If you take two or three years to get a 20 patient trial up and going, which happens sometimes with single site investigator initiated trials, the thing that you were asking becomes obsolete by that time because the field has moved beyond you. And now you've kind of wasted that energy and the time. So I think doing multi-center 
bringing people together to do it rapidly so that we can get answers as quickly as possible because the science is moving fast and we want to make sure that we're not wasting patients, we're not wasting money, we're learning what we can and that we can help patients to benefit from this as quickly as possible. Couple God. of thoughts. <clears throat> I'm from a little town in Arkansas and even in my little town you can find an investment advisor. But if you want to find a cancer doctor, you have to drive, travel an hour to Memphis. Um, we are, this is a large country, and our health solutions are not equitably distributed at all. So in response to our call for commitments to change the way we do things, the National Minority Health Quality Forum put together a heat map of cancer and cancer disparities and cancer outcomes in the United States. And guess what? People die from treatable cancers more in minority communities, poor communities, in the south, in areas near mining smelters. These are predictable problems that have solutions, and we haven't dealt with those yet. We need to put you know, the easy solutions out there first, one of which is everybody needs insurance because the, the main determinant of who survives cancer is who has insurance, number one. Number two, we've got to take care of our children. So at the Biden Cancer Initiative, one of our board members from a venture capital firm did a survey of pediatric oncologists about the best way to increase pediatric trials. And to a person, they said, please, no more public-private partnerships. They haven't worked. So our board member resigned from our board. Her company is seed funding a company to do pediatric trials apart from adult trials by licensing in assets from pharma that they have a safety profile but they've stopped working on so that we can go direct to the problem. And even though we germinated the idea we have no financial interest, no governance role, it was just the right thing to do. Our board member's company was willing to do it and some of the best pediatric oncologists are working with her. These are solutions that, that are real. Uh, but, you know, when, uh, when we know that we can't cure people of curable diseases because they don't come into the system, we have to fix that first. And as we get to the more complicated cancers and the more complicated diseases, we have to remember that clinical trials shouldn't be a situation where you have to go to them. We need to let people do trials where they are. Mm -hmm. And that means that centers like Dana-Farber and Sloan Kettering, which are starting to do this, are helping put those protocols out to other places where people are treated in the community. Because okay. that keeps a lot of doctors from recommending patients for trials if they think it's trial and error, that's why they call it a trial, and they, it would be incredibly burdensome and costly for them to commute from somewhere in Mississippi to New York or Boston. I want to second what, what you said, Greg. It's really important. Um, you know, at a center like Dana-Farber, about 20 to 25 percent of our patients are eligible for clinical trials and get put on clinical trials. In the community, it's 3% of patients that have the opportunity to be on clinical trials, and that's not fair. Any patient whose cancer cannot be treated with currently available therapeutics deserves to be offered a chance to be on a clinical trial, and this is why we've established several satellites throughout New England, and we are keeping patients where they should be, which is local. Most patients can be treated locally, and they want to be in their home, and I think that's right as long as they're getting the same quality of care that they would get if they came to a tertiary cancer center. 
It's not easy to do this, I have to tell you. It's not easy to do this because setting up clinical trials is very complicated. It's taking us time. We have had some successes, but it is absolutely critical to eliminate the disparities in access to top-notch cancer care. So um, this is yes, go ahead, Rosala. Sorry. So I, I want to address that because I think um, our experience with DART is very pertinent to that. And uh, with the uh, help of the cooperative group SWOG and National Cancer Institute, as I mentioned, this trial opened quickly at more than 850 sites across the country. And when we started the trial, which is immunotherapy for rare tumors, the big concern was that it would not accrue. That was what everybody was worried about. And actually just the opposite happened. It accrued so quickly that we were overwhelmed by the uh, request to get on the trial. So you're you, you have addressed really an unmet need to have a clinical trial that is a good trial and attractive to patients, in this case, immunotherapy, um, locally, where the patient lives. Uh, so that they don't have to travel across the country. I totally agree with you. I think it's doable. We've shown that we could do it with DART. And this is a platform trial, so um, other trials should be able to do the same thing for rare cancers. That's great. Some interesting thoughts in all of that. Uh, just on the subject of insurance uh, and the need for it, can I just put a word in for universal health care as well from my <laughs> British perspective? <laughs> just make sure that's on the agenda. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, Tessa thought was very important in rare cancers was international collaboration. Uh, and maybe I could talk to you a little bit about this, Greg, and increasing the pool of patients to work with. How important is this? How urgent is this? We've seen that um, these very adaptive uh, <coughs> widespread trials can be helpful. We've talked about sharing of data. Let's talk a bit about international work. So we had a summit in Washington on uh, September 21st last year, and we had 450 local workshops uh, all over the United States, in every state, and in Kenya, Nigeria, and Canada. When we got the photos from the workshops in Kenya and Nigeria, uh, a group of uh, local women were doing a dance. And when you looked at the picture, what you realized was they were demonstrating breast self-examination <laughs> in the dance with young girls and older women. And I was so blown away um, that that was, that was what they had chosen to do on that day, which is a wonderful thing to do because breast cancer that is treatable here is still way too deadly in, uh, in Africa in particular. When we were in the White House, uh, Vice President Biden executed over a dozen memoranda of understanding with other countries for the sharing of proteomic and genomic data here in the United States with the Genomic Data Commons and the programs at the NCI. Uh, because uh, cancer, of course, knows no borders, it knows no parties. Um, and we found that every country we talked to was more than willing to start sharing their data. In fact, some of them more willing than some of our cancer centers. So that's, it's, a, it's a constant challenge. At least now people say they want to share. Five, ten years ago, that was not the answer. But I mean, that's a really interesting point. I mean, sometimes you do find that individual institutes are not going to mention any names, but that an individual researchers do want to hold on to their data. They feel like they need to because they have to publish and things like that. Are you saying you feel there's been something of a kind of social shift or there's something different happening? I think it's now become impolitic to say you don't want to share. 
But and now the next step is, okay, how are we going to share and what's in it for me? Okay, so how are we going to share and what is it in for them? <laughs> so so uh, we, have, we have at the Biden Cancer Initiative a whole working group on data sharing. And the, and the first thing is it's going to be patient-driven. Every disruption of every industry in America is consumer-driven, patient-driven. Marriott didn't create Airbnb, right? Taxi companies didn't create Uber. They created a situation where consumers could demand a different kind of environment or a different kind of service. So we are accenting the patient's right of access to their medical records, which is already the law. We are creating incentives for people to share their research data by giving them more credit when they publish and by reminding them that when you share your data set, you're going to see a thousand data sets that come back to you. The problem has always been, I've spent 20 years building up this database. What if somebody else figures it out before I do? I understand that, but none of these arguments can compare to the health of a patient that is delayed because of the system. So basically what you're saying is, is if the data is portable enough, I get my records and then I give them to whoever I think is going to help progress cancer. Yes, for, for instance, here at the Broad, uh, uh, the Count Me In initiative. That's with Dana Farber. And Dana Farber as well. Uh, the, the Count Me In initiative is a great example. Get people that make sure they know they can get their records, give them a place where they can share them so we can learn from each other and good things will happen. So that's people listening to this should all, who, you know, maybe who patients should try and look up this Count Me In initiative. Absolutely. And you have a right to access your records. Your record keeper may not know that, so you have to be adamant about it. But just as you have the right to your financial records, imagine if your bank or investment advisor said, no, no, I can't give you those. You won't understand them. You would have a fit. You should have a fit about your health records. Well, Count Me In is, I think, a, a really good beginning, um, and it was, it was started by Nick Wagley, who's a breast oncologist at Dana-Farber. Uh, he thought, well, let me, I need more samples from patients with, with breast cancer, and so he did crowdsourcing and was able to get about 50,000 samples, and that inspired the creation of Count Me In, which he is directing, um, for many cancers, so patients can as you said, they can uh, demand their records and they send in a sample, a saliva or a mouth uh, scrub or whatever, so that we can do the genomics. Now, that's a good beginning, but the actual quality of the electronic medical records, they're not electronic, they're PDFs. We have a ways to go yeah. to be able mm -hmm. to make those medical records interpretable. And we just have the genomics. So, mm -hmm. you know, we need, we need other buckets of data as we talked about earlier, but uh, at least it's a way that patients can say, yeah, I want to know what I have and I want to know what my genomics are because I live in a rural area and I don't have access to that. That's right. You know, George Church said a really interesting thing, as he often does. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great example of thinking, you know, what would Google do? Google turns everything upside down. Uh, so George Church said, you know, we spend way too much time talking about the cost of genomic testing we should pay people to get genomic testing. So let's say you tested a million children at birth to find the one or two with a rare cancer that you can deal with if you catch it quickly and you have a genetic defect that we have some way of dealing with. The money you save from treating somebody early in the cancer, you then can distribute to all the other people who got tested as their reward for being tested. 
we shouldn't be saying, well, we can't test people because it's too expensive and we won't know what the benefits are. We know what the benefits are. We need to turn it around and say, you know what? If you agree to get tested, if we end up saving the system money, we're going to give you some money for your being willing to do it. In, in the last few minutes, I want to get on to that really uh, icky subject uh, for any discussion about cancer therapies, and that's on, on drug costs. And I wonder if maybe some of you could uh, offer a few thoughts on uh, out-of-pocket costs. And also um, this proposal as well that um, uh, PBMs uh, return money to patients um, uh, for their prescriptions. I wonder if anyone wants to leap in and have some thoughts. I, I made a career of leaping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we talk way too much about price and not enough about patient copay. There should be zero out-of-pocket costs for cancer patients. Zero. Seventy-five percent of first treatments fail. Somebody still has to pay for that. Neither the pharmaceutical industry nor the insurance industry is making their living off of that copay. It is designed to discourage use of other drugs, not cancer drugs. It was designed to discourage overuse of Viagra, overuse of Lipitor, overuse of chronic disease drugs. Now we have curative drugs. The patient copay should be zero, and we need to reform the system so that the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies can work out the economics between them and leave the patient out of it. When I was in Sweden and I was giving a talk and I said, how much does a cancer drug cost patients in Sweden? And they said, if it works, it's zero. Yeah. And is financial toxicity a real issue then in the, U in oh. the US? Yeah. It's the cause of most bankruptcies. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so I. I've sort of been on both sides of the fence. Um, I'm a basic scientist, I'm in, in academia, but I also serve on the board of directors of GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceuticals, and I was on the board of directors of Bristol-Myers Squibb. And I guess what I would say is there are transformative drugs and there are me-too drugs. Transformative drugs are those that completely change the outcome for a patient, like immunotherapies, like the hepatitis C drug, which saved money. Yeah. It was expensive, $80,000. Now it's $20,000 because the market forces come in and there's competition and the price goes down. Um, but when you think of the millions, multi, multi millions of dollars that that saved in terms of hospitalization, the development of ca liver cancer in patients who had hepatitis C, that drug is worth it, okay? Um, <clears throat> All right, but well, we can't, you know, you can't keep on raising the price of drugs. So as more and more immunotherapeutics become available, which I hope they will, and you're combining them with targeted therapeutics, you can't keep on adding those together. So we do need to think very, very seriously about um, drug pricing and control, and I've said that. Okay. I've said that very openly. Well, look, thank you for addressing that. I really appreciate that. Um, now, it's uh, time to throw it open to questions, and um, the first one goes to Jess Mills, who's uh, in front of us now. So would you like to make some comments, Jess? Thank you so much. So um, my name is, I'm Jess Mills. I'm daughter of the indescribably magnificent Tessa Jow, and I can't tell you what an I mean, it's been an incredibly 
special and emotional day for me being here with amongst so many colleagues and friends who she adored and was was loved by in return um so on the 24th of may 20 2017 um without any formal warning mum suffered two major seizures and was subsequently diagnosed with a grade four glioblastoma on the left temporal lobe of her brain um as i'm sure many people in this room know nothing can prepare patients or families with for a diagnosis like glioblastoma um, a standard of care that offers no chance of long-term survival or good quality of life and only 2% of patients making it onto a randomised controlled trial. So we were cast off into the very, very common patient journey that really initially was defined by its hopelessness. Um, however, we were already at a very lucky end of an awful spectrum, uh, spectrum because by virtue of the work mum had done in public health her whole life, when the news went up of her diagnosis, we were suddenly inundated with offers of help from some of the leading minds in neuro-oncology from around the world, all desperate to do whatever they could do to help. And in the coming weeks that came, that, that crushingly low ceiling of options was removed and uh, a galaxy of other options were presented to us. Um, her genomic data was sequenced and then suddenly we were prescribed everything from nutraceuticals up to off-label cancer drugs to repurposed medications. And just this extraordinary network of support and advice and guidance that descended around us, which honestly just transformed the whole experience for us. But the thing mum kept saying was, what about the millions of patients that don't have this extraordinary network of support? What do they do? Um, the only time I ever saw my mum cry throughout the whole of her illness was um, at her radio, one of her radiotherapies appointments that year that she was receiving through a national health, the National Health Hospital where, as you all know, in England patients receive their standard of care completely free of charge. Um, and she came out of the appointment and she was weeping and she was, she said to me, I've just sat in that waiting room with a room of 15 other patients like me and has had the heartbreaking realisation that the fate of every single one of them has already been written by virtue of their privilege or lack of it and how that's going to determine them to go beyond the, the crushing limitations of the standard of care here. And in her words, this exemplified the most despicable example of inequality. And it was really these experiences that um, met in the last four months of her life. She instigated what has now um, become known as the Tessagel Brain Cancer Mission, which has been brought together, um, which, which happened as a result of the speech she gave in the Lords that you've seen an extract of. And, and, and I'm now leading um, as part of the executive team on the Tessagel Brain Cancer Mission, which is uh, brought together the leading minds in government, the Department of Health, uh, science, research, trials, training, um, patient advocacy organisations, data scientists to come together to radically rethink the way that we're approaching intractable, intractable forms of cancer like glioblastoma as a way of trying to create an exemplar across the board for the way that things can be done for other rare cancers. And in a very short amount of time we have made some extraordinary progress which I feel is indicative of where the future should and could lie for other rare cancers too. So in three months time we're launching the first ever adaptive personalised trial for uh, brain cancer in the UK called the Tessagel Brain Matrix, which is again championing the spirit of collaboration that, that she's so
so passionately believed in, drawing on um, 10 different centres of excellence within the UK to deliver the programme. Uh, the Tessa Gell Fellowship Programme, which is going to train nine fellows a year in the leading, most cutting-edge practices around the world internationally, um, and also a completely new optimised um, model of standard of care for patients too. And so, at this point, I it's a huge moment of reflection and it's a huge moment of inspiration to hear how aligned we are in, in our visions for the future. And I just ask the question that if patients really are at the centre and focus of our visions and the utmost ambitions for the future, um, let us all work with greater collaboration. Let us never ever, as mum said, put this in the too difficult box. And um, as mum said in the final words of her speech, let's all imagine a future where patients live well with cancer and they don't just die from it. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jess. Um, they were incredibly heartfelt uh, words. And uh, having lost my own father to glioblastoma, I know that your uh, work uh, with Tessa Giles charity would have been incredibly valuable to our family uh, at the same time. Now, um, we've got some questions from online, which I will take first. Um, and there's one which I thought was pretty interesting because it will be a question that a lot of people are facing right now, because we've talked a lot about the future, the near future and what we can do, but what about right now? And so the question is this, um, and the name has been withheld. I have a known mutation, SDHB, that causes inherited cancers with only 250 known patients with this disease. Could a complete genome of our tumor tissue help a researcher find something to target since we have currently have no cure? So that seems to be a question. Well, absolutely the answer to that is yes. And I just want to re-emphasize what Jill said. We need to invest in basic science. The discoveries are going to take place in basic science laboratories. <clears throat> and we have inadequate government funding right now for basic research. Pharmaceutical companies are great at developing the drugs, but we have to know what is there to target. And frankly, as we said before, we're at the tip of the iceberg in immunotherapy. We can only treat 10 different tumors, and only 20% or 30% of those patients who have those tumors respond. So what do we need to do? We need to discover more targets. And here we have a lady who knows what her target gene is, where the mutation is. That gives us the opportunity to do translational research on that genetic mutation, make sure it is functional, it really does account for the disease, and then to develop, test it in preclinical animal models. And how is that going to help this patient? Well, it's going to help this patient because you need to know, first of all, whether the genetic mutation is the one that's driving Try her disease. disease right. And you, can, you have to test that out in preclinical animal models, and then you need to test it out in human cells. And once you get to that point, then you can partner with the private sector, because honestly, the marriage between basic research in academia and the private sector is a marriage made in heaven for our patients. It's the fastest way to get a new drug made. But I mean, if we're honest, what we don't know is the sort of immunological profile on top of that. So it could be that you could get your whole genome sequenced and you could still have 
you know, missing information. It seemed to be what you were saying, it's those layers and layers of information. That's right. There, and, and, and those layers of information are going to be gathered in academic yes. medical centers and analyzed in academic medical centers. And we're going to come up, you know, already there are a dozen at least, two dozen more new targets for immunotherapy that we've discovered several new ones. Other cancer centers have discovered other new targets. And, you know, at Dana-Farber, we actually have a very strong uh, medicinal chemistry group, and so we can actually generate tool compounds against that and test those compounds in animals to see whether yep. they have the required effect. We can make an, an animal model of that genetic mutation, develop a drug against the genetic mutation, test it in the animal, and now we're at a point where, you know, we validated it, right? We, we, we've de-risked the, the risk of developing that drug. And pharmaceutical companies would be much more likely to say, okay, we believe all of these data that have been generated in these academic medical centers, we trust it, and we're gonna try to make okay. a drug that can go into humans. But let me just see, are there any questions in the audience? Because I have quite a few online, I'm happy to. Yes, lady down there, please. Hi, my name is Kate Arline. I work at Shepherd Therapeutics. We are focused exclusively on rare cancer, and I lead the efforts uh, to do computational analysis. And the big challenge that we see, number one, everything that you brought up, especially the disparities in care, uh, the lack of sequencing, those are big issues. But from our standpoint, what we lack is information, and that's what's locked up in the institutions. And we're at a point where computationally we can use massive screening, massive processing to look for targets that are overlapped between patients. So I'm wondering what all of you are doing to make that information publicly accessible. Because academic labs traditionally have done that work, but now smaller companies can do it. Now we can validate and process that ourselves and start looking at repurposing and other ways of going after these targets. So Dana-Farber has spun out 30 companies in the last decade, most of which are still alive and kicking. Um, you know, scientists know no boundaries. If you're a scientist, you're going to collaborate with the best person you can to move your science forward. And I, can, I can't speak for other cancer centers, but Dana-Farber is very, very open to sharing data. So. And can Jill, I, maybe, sorry. I'm sorry, we're running on time. Do you so want to say a few words? At the Cancer Research Institute, we have funded a, a, a new initiative that's called the CRI iAtlas, and it's an open source, a data source that uh, is based on the backbone of TCGA, taking those cancers, but putting in related to those immunological components and analysis of all these cancers, and making this open source for any in, uh, researcher to come in. We're hoping to, that this will become, my thought of funding this, which is a, was a big deal for us to fund this, was that this could become a repository that the community would able to put data in and share it because we need and this is all curated data because it's you know it's very easy to say we want to have a database and everybody can put it in the biggest problem is having the data put in in the right way have it accessible and have it be able to be analyzed and that's not an inconsequential thing so I think it's important to have these repositories I think I'm hoping that from an immune perspective this would be something that could be shared for the whole community and, and, and open source for everyone Greg, Rizal, do either of you have anything to add? All of the research funded through the Cancer Moonshot, uh, $1.8 billion for NCI, has to be published in open access journals as a start. And uh, frankly, all cancer research should be. Please, raw sequencing data. That's at the Genomic Data Commons. All the genetic information from the, the Cancer Genome Atlas is on uh, storage there for anybody to look at. 
Okay, so we have a call for raw sequencing data, please, from the front. <laughs> okay, now, um, it's our job, panelists, should you choose to accept it, to wrap up uh, briefly um, and give us a couple of key takeaway messages in the next two minutes. So I will start to, with, with Rizal, actually, because I feel very guilty that I have slightly ignored you. Do you want to give us a few takeaways? Um, I think the takeaways are that um, uh, rare cancers may be a model for all cancers and that uh, we need to look at cancers as individuals uh, and uh, we think of them as snowflakes. I'm from Canada so we're familiar with snowflakes. Each snowflake is complicated, each snowflake is unique and we do genomics, when we do immune profiles, that's what we've seen with cancer. Each one is complicated, each one is unique and we need to treat them that way so rare cancers can be a model for everything that we do, really for all cancers. And that would be my takeaway. Well, that, that's great. I'd like us to rehabilitate the snowflake, um, certainly. Greg, would you like to? Well, you don't need to have, you don't have to be a PhD to know what the cancer research system and care system should look like. So what I ended up telling my mother, who was shocked at everything I was working on, we're trying to create the cancer research care and care system that most people think we already have. They think we share, they think we put patients first, they think that everybody's working together and that there are standards and that their knowledge is disseminated among all doctors in the country. That's not the case, it should be the case. We need a cancer system that is worthy of the courage of people like Tessa Jowell and, and we can get there, but it's going to require changing some things up here as well as in the lab. Jill? So at the Cancer Research Institute, it's all about research, and that's what I would say is the bottom line. Uh, as much as I say, I think probably less so at the patient care level, but at the research level, there is a lot of collaboration that has gone on, and it still goes on. And I think that uh, people should realize that, and it's going to take research from across from basic laboratory, correlative science, and clinical research. And I think that's the only place the answers come from. And I think funding for that needs to be increased. Laurie. I am fed up with cancer researchers and clinicians who don't put the patient first. And putting the patient first to me means not being worried about who's publishing what when, but working together, sharing everything we know because no one place and no one person can do this alone. We have to do it together. You know, I, I, I'm honored to be the CEO of an institution like Dana-Farber where we deliver both exceptional care and do extraordinary research. And the thing I love best about Dana-Farber is that everybody buys into that mission. I wish that were true of everybody who did cancer research because, you know, we only go around once and what is the most important thing we can accomplish? Why are we working so hard? Why, why do my oncologists and our researchers, why are they there 18 hours a day? It is not for their own personal glory, it is because we want to make cancer go away. And I, I like to say, you know, Dana-Farber can disappear when cancer disappears, but until then, 
we need to keep on working and we must work together. Well, with that, um, I, I must bring this uh, panel to a close and I'd like to uh, apologize to all the people online who sent in questions that we weren't able to get to. We had some really interesting, incredible questions, um, one for another time, I think. Um, I'd like to encourage uh, viewers to tune in to the next forum. Uh, one is on the spread of hate and racism um, on February the 13th. And then um, the school also has a new Center for Global Cancer Prevention that will have its inaugural symposium on February the 4th in time for World Cancer Day. And more information is available on the forum site. And with that, I'll say thank you and um, good day to you all. This has been a production of the Forum at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.